0: Today's scripture is from 1st Corinthians chapter 2 verse 1 through 5 and I when I came to you brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of god it's good to be with you at least some of you the room is filled much more than it usually is on sundays um, if you haven't already, thank you, Jimmy, for reading today's scripture. Um, would you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5? through 5? I, too, am coming to you today in much fear and trembling and weakness, and so I would like to go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God in heaven, I thank you for this opportunity, and I thank you for this church. Lord, it is my privilege, and it is my eager desire to love them now by speaking your truth from your word. Lord, I ask that you would increase and that I would decrease, and that your message would go forth in the wisdom and power of your son, Jesus Christ, that our hearts might be turned toward the gospel, and that we would be sanctified, that we would be saved, and that we would be brought safely to you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Uh, What are you resting your life on? what are you resting your life on? In a 2018 article, a stat was shared addressing the quintillion bits of data that are being produced every day because of the boom of the dot-com era and the digital age. The author cites that in the two years prior to when it was written, this is 2018, between 2016 and 2018, more than 90% of all the information ever produced In the world occurred in those two years. That number is staggering and it only continues to go up. I'm sure we live in a day where information content and data is shared in orders of magnitude that we cannot possibly fathom. In another research article, the amount of information sent in 2007 alone was equivalent to every human being on earth reading 174 newspapers every day for the same year. There is both wonder and astonishment when you begin to think about the impact, the influence, and the strides mankind has made in the last century. And yet it produces an equally significant problem. What do we make of all of this? How do we filter through the data and the competing voices to arrive at what is important and worthwhile and true? Who do we credit for the industry advancement? Do I dare say glory of all that we are taking part in every single day? Today's message is entitled, Resting on the Wisdom and Power of God. I would like for us to consider today a problem that is not new to our specific time and place, but a problem that occurs in every single generation. Whose wisdom is most advantageous? Whose wisdom is most true? Whose wisdom is most necessary for the good of man? Well, in our text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul addresses the theme of wisdom as he recounts his initial missionary efforts among the Corinthian church several years prior. The purpose of Paul's letter and the occasion for it is that what he writes about that he writes about is he's heard of reports and concerns that have made their way back to him as he is now ministering in the church of Ephesus. Described in these reports were issues of church division, marital issues, sexual immorality, and a return to idolatry. If you don't know anything about the city of Corinth, it was much like a modern-day metropolis, a famous city, something similar to that of New York City or San Francisco. Everyone knows those cities, and it attracted visitors and travelers from all over the Roman Empire. It was politically, economically, and socially prosperous, And it valued its highly competitive spirit that drew the best of the best from all around. Anyone who desired to make a name for themselves would have to make their way through Corinth. As one commentator describes the city, while it was intellectually alert, materially prosperous, it was also morally corrupt. The greatest issue facing the Corinthian church was its constant exposure and the pressure to be like the world around it. And this is what led to many reports coming to Paul as the church was now comparing and applying these Corinthian worldly cultural standards to the ministry and the church. And that is at the heart of what is causing so many issues. 1 Corinthians Two, one through five. Paul is reflecting on his church planting experience. And so from our passage, I want to consider three points and then a final point of some practical application. But from our text today, I would like us to consider three headers or three points. First, the critique of Paul. Second, the methodology of Paul. And third, the purpose of Paul. First, the critique of Paul on the Corinthian culture. We know from chapter 1 that Paul and the other missionaries are being compared to one another. People are trying to figure out which of the leaders was the most effective according to the wisdom of the age. They're trying to determine which leader among them was wise according to the standards set by Corinthian culture. Notice several times from our passage today the negative use of the word wisdom. Paul critiques and distance himself from the standards that are set on him by the cultures. He says, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In verse 4, he says, my speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom. And again then in verse 5, he did not want the faith of the Corinthians to rest on the wisdom of men. This clues us into something about the emphasis and the problems leading to the divisions and the reports that are being brought to him by concerned church members from chapter 1, verse 11. The reason that these divisions had sprung up were in part from worldly values, worldly ideas of wisdom that the church had adopted from the culture that surrounded them. And we're given hints in our text of what these kind of values were. You don't need to be a New Testament scholar to see it for yourself, to see what these Corinthian people cared most about. They placed high value on intellectual acumen. They desired to quantify which missionary embodied gospel ministry using worldly and cultural criteria set not by the teachings of the missionaries, Not on the scripture and the wisdom of God, but on the wisdom and the culture of the day. Who among them had the most lofty speech? Who came to them with the most plausible words? Who spoke the most eloquently? Who was the most persuasive? The culture of the time would have highly valued rhetorical skills as a means of determining who is the most worthwhile to listen to. Who among these men had the best public speaking skills? Who was the best teacher that sounded the wisest? Who was the most shrewd? Who was the most effective debater? Who was the most effective in proclaiming the gospel among us? Who is most like the great orators that we see in our great city? Conversations and problems are illustrated by Paul in verse 12 of chapter 1. He writes, I hear that you say, are you a follower of Paul? Are you a follower of Cephas? Who baptized you? Oh, that's a shame. I guess that's to be expected from a guy who was saved under the ministry of Apollos. These are the kind of divisions and divisive things that were happening within the church. What is going on here? Well, just like today, every church is at constant risk of absorbing the societal ideologies, the practice, and the values that are around them, to not only judge ministry effectiveness, but to compare ministry success. You can think of it like this. How do you go about comparing Michael Jordan versus LeBron James? What standard or metric do you use to determine who is the best? This is an argument among many basketball lovers. Oh, LeBron, Oh, he will eventually beat all of Jordan's records yeah, but, but Jordan accomplished so much more in the short amount of time, and he averages better than LeBron in almost every category. Well, LeBron is, is bigger and stronger, and the NBA is a much more physical game now. If you took LeBron and put him in the NBA back then, he would completely dominate. Oh, but Jordan, he has, he has more titles. No one's changed the game of basketball more than Michael. I could go on and on but I actually don't watch any basketball. So I I don't really know. I have simply parroted to you things that I have heard from others. So do not think I have a dog in this fight. I have no idea if even what I said was true. But you get the analogy, right? This is exactly what was taking place in the Corinthian church just several years after Paul had left. People began to form dividing lines. They began to pick And make parties that didn't even exist based on not the word and teachings that they had received from these men that testified to the grace of God and the wisdom and power of Him, but on the values and standards of men set by men. Paul is critiquing the culture and now the church in their adoption of this wisdom. But do not think that because we are outsiders looking in 2,000 years later that we are not prone to similar errors. We as individuals, not just churches, we must ask ourselves, what are we resting on for the effectiveness and the success of our ministries? And I am not talking about the ministry of the pulpit. I am talking about whether it be missions, benevolence, Outreach, parenting, youth, personal evangelism, worship, social justice—the list can go on and on. But what we must see here is Paul is critiquing the Corinthian church because the church was acting more like uh, was acting more Corinthian than they were Christian. We do not closely examine ourselves from time to time. If we do not actively take precautions to weed out worldly influences, if we do not identify cultural values that shape us more than the Word of God, it will not take a generation of Christians later to begin filtering teaching and ministry and morality through the matrix of the wisdom of man. For the Corinthian church, it only took two to three years. That should be a warning for us. That should be something that should alert us not to put our guard down. We must review and defend and hold ourselves constantly to the authority of God's word in everything that we do. Friend, are you being motivated to change in the church or in your lives because you are convinced from God's word or because of some kind of societal pressure? Are we upholding a Christian value or doctrine because that's the way that it has always been or because we are convinced by it from the scriptures? Do you know why you believe the things that you believe? Are you able to articulate them? Are you able to defend and critique Other points of view that are not centered in a Christian worldview based more on the wisdom of the day or according to the knowledge and the wisdom of God. I realize that there are many good podcasts, many good pastors whose ministries have become available to us online. But when it comes to an issue or a value or subject matter, are we more convinced because John Piper said something on an issue or because the scriptures say something on an issue? I use John Piper because I love John Piper. although I have nothing against John. Are your beliefs about politics, finances, education, marriage, gospel ministry shaped more by the wisdom of our day or by the wisdom of God? Have you consumed more content in the past few months? And are you more informed about race issues and social justice from your favorite news program? Or do I dare say social media or your Bible? the issues facing the Corinthian church that Paul is critiquing, these things do not just happen overnight. They don't spring from anywhere. They had to have, for them to have reached the public level of discussion, we must realize that it first had to take place at the private level of the individuals. And so we must be humble enough to frequently reflect, and if necessary, admit that we are more knowledgeable and we rely on the values of the world sometimes more than we rely on the wisdom of God and the Word of God. What are you resting your life on? We must be vigilant to review and take stock of these things in our lives, lest we think issues of doctrine, practice, moral drift happen over many years. The time that it takes to have the influence of the world and its values seep into the church that leads to unhealthy comparisons, divisions, that set new standards of morality, that promote rampant sexual sin and idolatry in the church, did not take an entire generation to play itself out. It only took several years. Paul, well, in our text, is clearly critiquing the values and the wisdom of the day, as well as calling out the church for their reliance on this wisdom that does not come from God. Point number one, Paul's critique of Corinthian culture. Point number two, the methodology of Paul's ministry. I am sure many of us imagine ourselves wishing that we could have sat under the ministry of Paul. We perceive him to be this titan of faith, One who preached and taught powerfully, who planted a dozen or more so churches, counseled and discipled so many influential church leaders. He took the gospel to the Gentiles in some of the most hostile places for the glory of God. If we could have only been a fly on the wall to see Paul's ministry up close, we would then be able to draw something from it. We would be able to see its essence and and the nuances and its flavor. And then we can take that and bring it back to our context and then real revival would sweep through our churches. But that is not how the Corinthian church viewed Paul. That is not how Paul viewed Paul. In fact, he was so unassuming in his ministry that some even began to question his apostleship. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, it was said of him, His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech is of no account. And then Paul says of himself in verse 3, I was among you in weakness and in much fear and trembling. Paul does not try to deny or cover up or minimize his deficiencies. He's highlighting them right now. He's drawing their attention to them. Quite frankly, Paul does not sound like the kind of preacher who I would invite to our next church retreat. This description of Paul makes him quite honestly sound lame. Paul was not like one of these TED talkers that we can view online who perfectly present their entire life work and expertise in a very engaging, spellbinding, 15-minute sermonette. Paul describes himself almost as the antithesis of what an effective communicator is supposed to be like. He doesn't describe himself as one who displayed stunning character qualities of self-assurance and bravado, calmness and a superiority that the Corinthians would have valued in a leader. He makes himself... Sound rather pitiful. But what's so interesting about this is how intentional it was. It's not as if he was unaware of such external and subjective worldly standards that were going to be placed on him. He says in verse 2 I decided, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There was an intentional effort on Paul's part to avoid sounding like his contemporaries, to not try to use Christ or the gospel to appear wise, intelligent, or impressive. He did not want to be counted among the greatest orators and public speakers of Corinth in unfolding the profound mysteries of God with his poise and lofty words. No, Paul's methodology is that he was intentional to do only one thing. I decided to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. And for that reason, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. He didn't come with a program. He didn't come with grand ideas of how he would convince the Corinthians to follow Christ. He came with a singular message and focus. I will preach Christ and him crucified. Imagine for a moment being part of Paul's missions and outreach team and trying to pitch this missionary vision to a sending missionary agency today. Okay, Paul, you've had quite the conversion. We, we saw that you were murdering many of us before, but now the Lord has converted you and you want to plant churches. That, that's awesome. What's your game plan, Paul? What, do, what are you bringing to the table? What's the course of action for reaching these pagan cities? Yeah, well guys, thanks for you know, having me. The, honestly, the Lord just put on my heart to proclaim Christ crucified, to proclaim the gospel and the mysteries of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Yes, yes, Paul, we realize that. But, but, but how are you going to do that? One does not simply walk into Corinth and proclaim Christ. We need a program. We need strategies. We need ideas. In fact, Paul, we have some data here. These guys really appreciate public speaking skills. They really appreciate intellect and education. You know, your Pharisee background is going to come in handy here. They love debating points. They love the, the, fierce, the fierceness of someone as they come in and proclaim some truth. So what steps are you going to do to prepare yourself in order to reach these Gentiles better? Show us. Tell us what you will do. Guys, I'm, I'm just going to preach Christ crucified not exactly a pitch, I imagine would win a tremendous amount of backing and support. It's too basic. It's, it's too obvious. It's quite frankly, it's not compelling. And so I realize I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek here, but it's important for us to pause and consider for a moment. What was the overall driving force of Paul's ministry? What did Paul believe would win the people to God and eliminate the, the rampant immorality and idolatry that so plagued the Corinthian culture? In the American church today, I think we have become obsessed with using this phrase gospel-centered. It's kind of just like a buzzword now. You just attach it to the beginning of anything you're going to say because that's how everyone's supposed to be doing ministry. We say gospel-centered, but what does it mean to be gospel-centered? To be shaped by Christ crucified. Don't get me wrong, I have been guilty of just throwing this thing in front of anything that I say. We say we want to do things the gospel-centered way. We want men and women who embody gospel-centered ministry and and cross-centered theology. But then we we tend to judge them on matters completely irrespective of that. We assume that this is just a given. The gospel is just kind of background music that is always supposed to be playing. But that, that is not what Paul is emphasizing here. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. This is something much more sweeping, much more foundational, something much more all-encompassing. Consider as an example how we listen to and critique preachers in the modern-day context. Ask yourself after hearing a sermon, what criteria do you use to establish if the preacher preached a truthful and effective message? What made you like it or dislike it? Oh, this preacher, he, he makes the best jokes. His, his illustrations were always so entertaining. His personality is, is so pleasant. I love listening to so-and-so. He's so down-to-earth. His style, he's smart. He's engaging. He's so culturally relevant. That pastor, man, he is, he is zealous and passionate in what he is saying. I always feel inspired after listening to him. He really knows how to speak to the people. None of those things are bad things for preachers to do. The problem is, is when our evaluation stops there. What about the content of his message? Did he argue his conclusions from the text of scripture? Are they rooted in a proper understanding of the biblical author? Did he actually teach me something new or or challenge me from the word of God? Was the gospel preached and Christ presented as the only means of salvation? Did the points and applications that he made actually come from the passage? Have I been convicted of sin? Do I now desire to walk more closely with Jesus and live a transformed life by the power of the Holy Spirit? Instead, conversations after a sermon can often become a divulging of how the preacher made us feel and our evaluation focus on how we thought his presentation went, but not actually on points that are drawn from the actual text. Sermons are not first and foremost evaluated on how they make us feel, but the truth that they uncover. Sermons exist to proclaim, thus saith the Lord. Sermons are intended to present something true about God, an objective truth about Him, about us, how we are to live and respond to faith. Sermons exist for the purpose of proclaiming the message and the good news of Jesus Christ That there exists a means and a way that we can be saved and reconciled to God. And for believers to have ways for them to grow in sanctification and holiness. It is through the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It is only through Jesus. And as listeners, we have the responsibility to respond to that message. Can we say amen? Can we affirm what the preacher is saying about the text? Is that what is what was preached resulting in a new desire to obey God and pursue Him more by the help of the Spirit of God? Conversations ought not to focus on the details of, of how articulate a preacher was or how funny or relevant he was or how personable and entertaining he may have been. These things certainly help. They assist the preacher in delivering the message. But as a listener, you must check for the necessary components. Did he depart to me words of life? Did he preach the word of God? Did he preach Christ? Or was there some other emphasis communicated? Now the pushback that often comes when talking like this is, don't you know there are a lot other things in the Bible? Paul wrote and taught about other stuff. In fact, in Paul's letter alone here, right after Paul says, I only decided to know Christ among you, he goes on to talk about different topics like church division, sexual immorality, idolatry, spiritual gifts. So which one is it? Is it only the gospel? Or is it these other things? Is Paul contradicting himself? No. He is making the argument that the effectiveness and success, the foundation for his ministry is not based on the wisdom, intellect, power, or the ingenuity of man and appealing to their felt wants or needs. But all of ministry, all teaching, all preaching, all obedience, all knowledge, all benefits of the Christian life is built on the foundation of the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't fix your marriage because you applied the best psychology and practices of the day. You can't end church division and racism by just being nicer and more educated. You can't overcome addiction to pornography and sexual sin or pride or any form of idolatry by the wisdom of man. Some of the things may be helpful, but they are not central. Paul understands that the only thing that can really help and speak life into these issues facing the church and all, all of the issues that you will encounter in your life for holiness, godliness, and sanctified growth are blood bought. They are purchased by the blood of Christ. And they are not just the key to unlocking those benefits, the gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the beginning, the middle, and the end. The only thing that will make what a preacher says profitable is if Jesus Christ has been proclaimed as crucified and risen for our redemption. And that he purchased and accomplished something that we could not accomplish for ourselves. Going back to our example about the way this idea of gospel-centered is often muddled, conversations of gospel preaching should center around what truth have I heard today? What obedience must I walk in based on what the preacher has said from the word? I say this because I fear too many leave sermons caring more how the message made them feel rather than how the message bears on their soul The wisdom of men focuses on the outside, on the external. It tries to quantify, create metrics of success that are not rooted in the wisdom and power of God. Oh, Tim Keller in New York City, he's successful because of this characteristic or quality. Oh, this ministry is most effective because they do this. Oh, this church is seeing numerical growth because of X, Y, and Z. The shift at times sort of man-centered approach to the wisdom and wisdom is subtle, not because those things don't help assist gospel ministry or that they're inherently bad, but because they supplant and become the primary reasons we believe the gospel proclaimed will be successful or effective. We get the order wrong. Seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added unto you. Paul is not unaware of what culture was doing to sway people and to win them to a cause. I don't think Paul was incapable of doing what he wanted them to see or to hear. After all, at one time, he was quite bold, quite confident, and very persuasive in getting people to persecute and martyr Christians. And Paul was not choosing to focus on gospel-centered ministry as the path of least resistance He intentionally chose a singular focus on Christ, not because it is one way to do ministry or a way to be an effective evangelist, but it was and continues to be the only way to effectively do ministry. Paul's methodology was to herald the gospel and focus solely on Christ. He did not come intending to wow the socks off of his hearers with worldly wisdom, intellect, or skillful speech, he wanted them to know the wisdom and power of God that transforms and saves sinners, and how that only comes by a firm resolution to know Christ and Him crucified. It is only in Christ that it is only in Christ and through gospel proclamation that God saves sinners. It is only through the gospel that they are sustained and sanctified. It is only through the gospel that people are safely brought to final salvation. Point number two, the methodology of Paul's ministry. Point number three, the purpose of Paul's labor. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified. Verse five, why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Friends, what is your life resting upon. What is your life resting upon? I recently caught a clip of somebody who I'm guessing is famous in the evangelical world. He's a Christian musician. I don't really remember his name, but he recently went on Twitter and he came out saying that he is no longer a follower of Christ. He's no longer Christian. So a YouTube channel picked up on his story and they interviewed him. Why did you fall away from faith? What caused you to stop believing and as i watched him speak i was i was struck by all the reasons that he gave i I was struck by them not because that they were compelling and i thought that they were good reasons i was struck how nothing that he said had to do with the cross of christ nothing that he said had to do with the wisdom the power and the glory of god being better and higher than man nothing to do with his sin before a personal and holy God and who he would have to answer to at the end of his life. Everything that he mentioned in that interview had to do with some argument that was defeated for God's existence, some aspect of faith that he couldn't reconcile with his life. How in some way, faith was actually counterproductive to meeting the needs of ongoing issues within broader culture. Things like sexuality, racial reconciliation, gender, and poverty. As I finished the interview, Psalm 127 popped into my head. Unless the Lord does build the house, in vain do the builders strive. What is your life resting on? Paul critiqued the cultural emphasis of the day. He was determined to preach nothing but the gospel and Christ crucified. But he did so with an intended purpose. That the faith of the Corinthians might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's pastoral heart for the church was to eliminate any and all foundation that faith might rest on something not in Jesus Christ. He did not want to supplant his message with anything, so that the believer, if they were faced with a crisis of faith, he wants them to conclude My faith, my salvation, my being saved. It's not because of how wise the preacher was, or how persuasive he was, or how shrewd he was, or how he entertained me. Paul's preaching was only, and he wanted it to only be centered on the spirit and the power of God. Paul, in love for the Corinthians and for the glory of God, purposely, fully let himself be ridiculed and mocked as weak, to avoid any foundation being laid on him, that men can come to faith outside of the power and wisdom of God. He labored among them and constantly reminded them that Christ is the cornerstone of true faith. In 1 Corinthians 3, 11, no, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Friend, what is your life resting on? The singular argument that has yet to face scrutiny is it on certain teachers or preachers, where if you found out that they were in some involved in some scandal, you would lose your faith. Is it based on tradition and upbringing, because your parents were Christians or you were just told that this is what you were supposed to believe, this is something that you're supposed to do? Is it on your works and on your efforts, where you? hope that when you come to the end of your life you'll be able to present what you've done with your life and say Lord allow me into your kingdom do you not see that I am worthy is it in your natural abilities and talents that have given you an advantage in some way in life do you rely more on your intellect or your looks or your charisma or your competitiveness are those things that you fall back on when things begin to go sideways if any of those foundations resonate with you I exhort you now to destroy that foundation before it destroys you. Repent of all other foundations that you are building your life upon and believe in Jesus Christ and rest your life upon him, his merits, his works, his life. Because Paul warns the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 19, quoting Isaiah 29, I... That is, God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. There is coming a day, friend, when God will expose all faulty foundations, all false beliefs, and he will destroy the wisdom of men that sets itself against God. And it is with love that I remind you and exhort you again, brothers and sisters, that you entrust your life to entrust yourself to anything other than Christ will result in destruction. God is not saving the world through technology. He is not saving the world through peace efforts. He is not saving the world through politics. He is not saving the world through the wisdom and guidance of men, but he is saving the world through the God-man, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for sinners and rose again from the grave for his glory. Paul reminds them in chapter 1 verse 26 those who have found faith in Christ they weren't wise they were not powerful they were not of noble birth or influence god specifically chose what was weak in the world what was foolish what was low he even things that are not, to bring nothing to nothing, things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. What are you resting in today, right now? Think about that, right now. If God were to return right now as I am speaking, and you were to stand before him at the judgment seat, what are you resting your life in? How do you respond if he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What are you resting in that makes you believe that you have peace and reconciliation with God? Because if that answer is anything other than Jesus Christ, you must cry out to him in your weakness. You must cry out to him in your foolishness. You must realize the sinner that you are and the merciful God that he is and cast yourself upon his grace. How amazing is it that God saves wretches like you and me through the folly of preachers like me. It pleases God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you are a Christian today, if you have been born again and you... Rest your faith on Jesus Christ. Rejoice that God, by His Spirit, by His power, sought you out and saved you through a knowledge about the death and the resurrection of His Son. And that He continues to sanctify you through that message. We don't graduate to other greater realities. It is Jesus Christ who is our righteousness. It is Jesus Christ who is our sanctification. It is Jesus Christ who is our redemption. It is Jesus who is our all in all. He is the most precious thing to us. It is all about Jesus, who is the wisdom and the power of God. We must rest our faith on Christ. We must build our faith on Christ. We must strengthen and expand our understanding and knowledge of God through Christ and through the proclamation of his gospel. Point number three, the purpose of Paul's labor. I'd like to quickly close with just a few practical implications and applications based on our text. One, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ. What do you desire to know more about than anything else? I mentioned earlier that the multitude, the magnitude of data that competes for our attention every day is is dizzying. How much of what we consume is motivated by a deeper desire to know more about Christ? I'm not saying that we should become hermits and just spend all day with our Bibles. I don't think anyone's at risk of doing that though trapped inside. But I think the challenge that we have is reflecting on the fact that it's just hard to make time for God. And so consider challenging yourself to honestly reflect what do you desire to know more about? Where does your time and your resources and your energies go? If it is not in some way centered on the reality of God. Ask, why is this the case? Second thing, what areas of your life are you prone to rest on more than Jesus for your salvation? All of us struggle to supplement the gospel with something. Ask yourself, is it money, success, beauty, intellect, power, self, pleasure? Psalm 139.24 teaches us to ask the Lord, see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Ask God to expose faulty foundations and, that would lead you away from him, that he would fill you more with the knowledge of his son, toward a greater love and appreciation of Christ, to learn only to rest in him. Third, what wisdom do you consult when it comes to problems in your home, in the workplace, or your relationships? Paul's decision to know nothing other than Christ is not just an application for leaders in the church. Paul begins chapters 1 and 2 of Corinthians addressing the issues of faulty wisdom and the need to know the wisdom of God because Paul is seeing and recognizing the devaluing of the gospel that is leading to friction. And if the gospel is at the root of true reconciliation, fixing the problems in the church, then it has to be the same answer for our own private lives as well. Paul is unapologetically gospel-centered in how he sees the church reconciling, growing in holiness, and purging itself from the influences of the world. And I think it's the same for how we handle issues in our private lives. Are you relying more on the practical wisdom of the world? Are you resting in God and his wisdom to transform your relationships? Do you work hard Or do the hard work, I should say, of proper study and finding resources that will help you have a proper fear of God. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fourth, does what you believe about God and salvation affect your proclamation of sharing Christ with others? What I mean is, do you really believe that God saves through the folly and the message of the cross? You know, personal evangelism is one of the hardest things for Christians to do. Global mission seems like something that only a special class of Christians can accomplish. And we get bogged down in thinking evangelism is a program of highly specific questions and answers and that we, know, we need to know how to deconstruct a person's worldview and we need to point out the logical inconsistencies and the need to understand a pluralistic framework to whatever. I'm not saying that studying... You didn't know what I just said. I'm not saying that you shouldn't study these things and that educating yourself is not beneficial. What I'm saying, though, is that Paul's missionary methodology had three qualities to it. Trust God, be intentional, share the gospel. You don't need to read up on all this mumble jumbo to be evangelistic. You just need to share the message of grace that God used to save you. I once was lost, but now I am found. It is because of the blood and work of Jesus Christ. We put so many artificial hurdles toward our evangelism and missions sometimes. Do you love Jesus? Then tell someone how much you love him. Are you growing in the knowledge of Christ and the word of God? Share it with somebody. Do you have a heart for sinners and the lost? You don't need permission. Pray and ask God that he might send you. The harvest is plentiful, but friends, the laborers are few. And I think it's because we give this kind of lip service that the gospel is of first importance, but it is actually the last thing we often think will save our hearers if they heard it. Do we believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ? Paul's methodology for evangelism was simple. Trust God, be intentional, share Christ. And this last point, it doesn't come directly from the text, but I felt convicted as I was studying it and as I was reflecting on the ministry of being a parent. Moms and dads, how are you doing in family worship? Are you spending time with your kids, reading from God's word, singing praises together, and praying to God as a family? Look, I'll be honest with you, family worship, will not earn you cool points. No one is ever going to say dad's Bible study was lit, okay? There is no real way to dress it up, to have it go viral, but it is wise. It is helpful. It does not have to be extravagant. It just needs to be consistent and faithful. It is worth doing because we know that God's word does not return void. If we believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, then there is no greater task in our homes than to gather together and worship Christ as a family. And so I encourage you, if you've fallen off the bandwagon, if you haven't properly ever really started, just start small. Build it up over time. It doesn't have to be elaborate. But don't grow weary of doing good, for in due season you will reap if we do not give up. Moms and dads, press on in family worship. In closing, at the beginning of our time, I mentioned the incredible amount of data that is generated every single day. But I was humbled by an even greater figure that I think demonstrates more profoundly the amazing wisdom and the glory of God over man. I know I've gone on long, but just hear me out. Looking at both digital memory and analog devices, I'm now quoting the article, the researchers calculate that humankind is able to store at least 295 exabytes of information that's the number 20. I mean, that's, the, that's that, that number 395 followed by 20 zeros. Uh, to put that in another way, if a single star is a bit of information, that's a galaxy of information for every person that exists in the world. Put that in another way, that's 315 times the number of grains of sand on the planet. But catch this, it is still less. Less it is still less than 1% of the information that is stored in all the DNA molecules of a human being. How true God's word is when Paul declares the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Whose wisdom do you long for? Whose wisdom do you rest on? If you really rested on the person and work of Jesus Christ? Beloved, turn to him in his wisdom, for he is the wisdom and power of God for the believer. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, I thank you for the attention, and I thank you for the desire of your people to hear your word today. I ask that you would make what I said beneficial. It is only by your power, by your Holy Spirit, that any of us turn away from the wisdom of the world, and toward, turn toward your wisdom, God. Would you help us love Christ, the gospel, more and more each day. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.